Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 3, verse 22 through 36. In the Pew Bible, it is on page 73 in the New Testament. So it's John chapter 3, verse 22 through 36. Hear the word of the Lord. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing near Anon, near Salem, because there was much water there. And people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples about, uh, with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you've testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is set of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He has received his testimony, has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. I'm longing more and more for that day. Um, when we at his feet fall with the sacred throng and we crown Christ Lord of all aren't you longing for that day Christ is Lord of all he's already crowned Lord of all that was his resurrection and his ascension that is the Father's declaration to all that he is Lord and all, uh, all uh, owe him their allegiance and obedience. But I can't wait for that day when, when, when like you and me, we will stand there in the presence of King Jesus and we will declare his crown rights together with a full heart, with holy joy in his presence. I really hope that that's where you're setting your eyes more and more in these days. We are, we are pilgrims and sojourners in this land, and we are, this, this place is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. We await a Savior who's going to come from there, not a Savior who's going to come from this world, right? And we sojourn as faithfully as we can together until that day when we are called home to glory or until that day when glory comes to us and Christ return. On that day we will see him as he is and we will be like him. I hope you're setting your eyes on that reality more and more as we are marching forward through time. Because if you're not, you're really not going to be a very encouraged, effective, spirit-filled Christian in life as it is now. I feel the need to pray. Why don't we pray and uh, ask for the Lord to be with us this morning. Father, we pray that you would do that miracle among us today. That you would cause your name to be hallowed among us in a way that none of us have experienced it before. That our pettiness, Lord, and our insignificant wranglings and our distracted musings upon the... Uh, things of this world would simply dissolve 
or that our offenses with one another would be uh, undermined and removed by the great glory of Jesus Christ. That uh, any grievances or complaints that we would have against one another, or however small or however significant those grievances might appear to be, that we would keep them in perspective, Lord, of the grace and the mercy that you have shown to us. Lord, how could we be forgiven of 100 million talents, thousands of talents worth of sin and hold a $100 worth of offense against a brother or sister? How could we do that and still live up to the glory of the gospel? Lord, you've called us to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel by which we have been called. And part of that is uh, walking with one another in such a way that we preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Lord, there is one Lord, there is one hope, there is one faith, there is one baptism one God and Father over all who is in all and who works through all. To him alone be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, that's our great hope. And, uh, and I pray that this morning we would see that Christ must increase and we must decrease in every way. Lord, help us see as a church body that that is the end to which we are called. That's why we walk together in fellowship in this place to the end that in each one of our lives, Christ would increase and we would decrease. Father, we pray, how will your name among us? Let the sanctity and the glory of your holy name. May it be tasted by us today. May we sense it and know it. You make your face shine upon us, O Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, the title of this morning, this morning's message is, He Must Increase. And um, in John chapter 3, verses 22 through 20, or 36, we have this period of overlap between the ministries of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. And that overlap is intentional. It was not an accident or it wasn't by happenstance that Jesus just appeared in the same region where John the Baptist was baptizing and then began baptizing in the same way that John was. That was no accident. As I mentioned last week, when Jesus came baptizing in the same region as John, he was signaling to John that his ministry was coming to an end, that his time for running the race that was set before him, his part in, in preaching and declaring the kingdom of heaven had come to its close, and it was time for John to pass the baton onto Jesus and to disappear into the background. Now, this period of overlap didn't last long, uh, but while it did last, it raised an important question about the ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus and how the two relate with one another. As our text this morning indicates, even John's disciples were confused about this. Even they didn't understand exactly what the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus truly was. And so what we find in, in John chapter 3 is John the Baptist, in the closing section of John 3 anyway, we find John the Baptist clarifying his ministry as it relates to Christ. And he sums it up wonderfully with that simple but familiar phrase, he must increase and I must decrease. That is the heart of John's perspective on his ministry in relation to Christ. It was all about increasing Christ and decreasing himself. Now, I've got the outlines in the slides for you guys as well, the points anyway, so I'm not going to list them all here at the beginning, but uh, if you want to write them down, I have them provided on the screen. 
basically two main points. The first one this morning is uh, verse 25 frames this discussion about the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus. Uh, It frames this discussion around a contentious debate that arose between John's disciples and an unnamed Jew. Now, verse 25 calls this in the New American Standard, verse 25 calls this a discussion that took place between them. That word actually indicates that this was a contentious or controversial debate. So this wasn't like a cordial setting. They weren't going back and forth very kindly and sweetly with one another. The picture here is that they were arguing very heatedly with each other. And you see in verse 25 that John's disciples were the instigators in this debate. It started with them. That's that phrase where it says, on the part of John's disciples, this discussion came about. Um, More literally in the Greek, it says, from John's disciples, that this debate came about from them. And we're told that the substance of that argument was dealing with the issue of purification. How a person can be pure in the eyes of God. Now, I've listened to uh, multiple sermons preached through this passage, and it's astonishing to me how often pastors or preachers don't really understand the connection between the discussion between the, the disciples and the Jew and the issue of purification and how it relates to Jesus. Like, there's this disconnect between all of them. And I read this, and it seems as plain as day to me, but... We'll see if that comes across clearly or plainly to you today, right? That's always the test of a preacher. Can you communicate what you're seeing clearly enough to let other people see it? So we'll see. You'll have to let me know at the end of the sermon how well this goes. With kindness, please. Um, Now, it isn't hard to understand why the disciples, in my opinion, why the disciples and this Jewish man were arguing with one another about purification. The entire life of the Jew, in fact, revolved around obtaining and maintaining purity in the eyes of God. For example, passages like Numbers 19, verse 20, make clear that purity is at the heart of what the law of God commanded. So it says there that uh, the man who is unclean and does not purify himself from uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly because... He has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water for impurity has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. Now, that's a very serious expectation from the law of God upon anyone who is not pure. Anyone who does not go through the rituals and obey the commandments that would lead towards purity in the eyes of God, this verse says that that person was to be cut off from the people. Now, and that's not just... When we hear that, we can't interpret that in the lens or through the lens of our own day. Where a church says, we don't want you here, well, that's fine. I can just go down the road to another church, right? And most of the time, there's not enough interaction between the two churches to know anything about the person who's showing up. And so that person can just blend in with the community and go on about his or her business without ever having to address the real issue that came up in the church previous. Right? That's, that's not how we're to understand what it means to be cut off from the people here in uh, Numbers chapter 19. To be cut off from the people meant basically to be cut off from the covenant itself. In other words, it's to be cut off from Yahweh himself. To be excommunicated or cut off from the people of Israel was to be cut off from the Lord himself. And so because of how severe that warning was, the Jewish people had developed all kinds of rituals and traditions that were designed to help keep that from happening. These rituals and these traditions that were designed to guard them against falling prey to this, of being unclean in the eyes of God and being removed from his people. We read about some of these in Mark chapter 7, verses 3 through 4, where it says that the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they carefully washed their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And then Mark writes, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are uh, many other things which they received, uh, which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. Interesting side note there, that word for washing of cups and pitchers and pots, that washing is baptizing. Uh, So immersing, just add that to the the sermon from last week. Um, 
But anyway, they had all of these regulations, all of these rituals that they would follow in order to maintain some semblance of purity in the, in the eyes of God. And verse 5 makes clear that, it, that this is dealing exactly with the issue of purity whenever the Pharisees come up to uh, the disciples and say, or Jesus, why do your disciples eat with impure hands? So they're, they're focusing on this issue of purity. Now, my whole point there is that the entire life of the Jewish person was dominated by making sure that he or her, he or her were, were pure, he or she was pure in the sight of God. There we go. So when John the Baptist steps into this flurry of religious practice and tradition, not calling for more cup washing and not calling for more hand washing, but calling people to submit to full immersion in a baptism of repentance... In effect, what he was declaring to every Jew was that none of those other washings and none of those other rituals and none of those other attempts were enough to make the person pure in the eyes of God. Something else was needed. And so when John comes preaching this message of repentance and submission to baptism, he is denouncing all the other practices that the Jewish people were engaged in in efforts to be pure in the eyes of God. And you know how touchy things get when you start attacking religious idols in people's lives. When you start telling them, hey, you know, I don't know that your hope in Christ is actually a true hope because it doesn't really bear the marks and the evidence of having a real relationship with God. When you start talking to people like that, they get highly offended. Right? Well, so John the Baptist comes calling into question all the religious practice of the Jewish people, declaring that true purity was not about washing your hands and that wasn't about washing utensils. And, for, and following rituals. True purity in the eyes of God was about heartfelt repentance. It was about a sincere faith that looked with anticipation for the coming of the Messiah. Now that would have been what John's disciples were declaring to this Jew in John chapter 3 when they were discussing the issue of purification. In effect saying, hey, if you truly want to be pure before God, then you have to come and be baptized by our rabbi, John. Well, we can understand why that would spark a debate. Right? Not only because the Jew would find it offensive, because basically it's condemning their entire lifestyle and worship of God. But more than that, this debate probably would have been sparked because it would bring up an important question. Even if that Jewish man did recognize his need to be baptized, whose baptism should he submit to? Should he submit to the baptism of John, as the disciples were saying, or should he submit to the baptism of Jesus? As is clear from the context, Jesus is coming into the same region. He's doing the same baptism. He's baptizing people the same way John was. So, so there's this contention, there's this point of contention here where people are left wondering, wait a second, what's the difference between these two baptisms? Which one is the right one? Which one is the wrong one? Which one do I submit to? Now we can picture this discussion going something like this. John's disciples saying to this Jew, hey man, come on. You need, to be, you need to be baptized. You're still in your sins, and God has called everyone to confess their sins to him and ask for repentance by submitting to the waters of baptism. And we can imagine that Jew responding something like this. All right, you say that I need to be baptized in order to be pure in the eyes of God. Well, let's suppose for a moment that I believe you. Then riddle me this. Which baptism should I get? Should I submit to your teacher's baptism? Or should I submit to that guy's baptism over there, that Jesus? See, he's baptizing. And in fact, there are a lot more people going to him to be baptized. So why should I come be baptized by your teacher? Now, that would have been a fair question. Which one of these baptisms can promise me that I will be pure in the eyes of God? Well, that's a fair question. And really brings up the issue of whether or not Jesus and John were practicing two different baptisms. There are some people who say they were. I absolutely categorically deny that. They were not two separate baptisms. They were the same baptism. They were both a baptism of repentance un in faith unto the Messiah, looking to Jesus, right? Both the same. Well, whatever the exact nature of the debate was in, in its particulars, it's obvious that somehow Jesus was brought into the midst of this discussion and that took John's disciples by surprise because they didn't have an answer for it. 
So verse 26, it says that John's disciples came seeking an answer from their rabbi. They came to John and they said, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. There's two different issues there. Number one, Jesus is baptizing, right? For John's disciples, that might be a cause for offense. Wasn't Jesus baptized by John? And doesn't that show Jesus to be one who is in submission to John? One who is submitting himself to the teaching of John? In other words, doesn't that make John the rabbi of Jesus? Wasn't that John's, um, uh, the reason why John didn't want to baptize Jesus in Matthew chapter 3? He says, wait, I need to be baptized by you and would you come to me? Well, John's disciples take up that same flavor. Obviously, possibly offended by by the fact that uh, Jesus had taken up baptism and began to practice it the way that their rabbi was practicing it. And you notice also that they were jealous because of what was happening as Jesus was baptizing. Jesus is not only co-opting what John was doing in in his ministry, but then he was gaining a, a much bigger following than what John was getting. All were coming to him. In other words, in in the eyes of John's disciples, John was losing his influence among the people. And he needed to do something about it. This shows more than anything else, I believe, that though these disciples had heard John bear witness about Jesus many times, they weren't actually listening to what he was saying. And man, that's a common problem, even today. Where a preacher will say something, declare some truth from the word of God, and be entirely misunderstood in what he was actually saying, right? Or people not making the connections between the truth being preached and how it applies to their lives, and they misinterpret it, right? It's not a new problem. Even John's disciples here were experiencing that. Now, what's interesting is that in the context of this debate, and I don't want to go on and on on this point, but it's just it's interesting to note that in the context of this debate, John's disciples believed that they were in the right. They believed that they were in a right relationship with God, and that's what gave them such, um, such uh, force and such energy in this debate to keep arguing with this Jew because they believed we are in the right with God and you are not. You need to come. You need to repent and you need to submit to God through John's baptism. And yet what we find here in their words in verse 26 is that even though they thought they were in the right and even though they thought they were in a right relationship with God, their their perception of the relationship between John and Jesus proves that they were no better off than the Jew with whom they were arguing. Even John's disciples had not made the connection between what it meant to have a right relationship with God in light of the Messiah who was coming. I just find that fascinating. And maybe I find it more fascinating than most because I've seen that same kind of arrogance in my own life before, right? So easy to be absolutely sure that you're in the right and argue ferociously about it. And only to come find out most of the time years later that you were wrong. And... uh, feel embarrassment over it. But anyway, they believe themselves to be in the right. And uh, so John does what John the Baptist was called to do. He seeks to bring an accurate understanding to his disciples, and he brings correction to them. And he points them all to Christ. Now, I see in, this is the second main point, John's correction And I see in what John has listed out here four ways that he seeks to correct his disciples, uh, beginning in verse 27 and going to verse 30. And that's what we're going to focus on today. We're going to come back next week and look at 31 through 36. But the first way that we see John correcting his disciples, number one, John corrects his disciples in verse 27 by declaring an important truth to them. That God is sovereignly in control over this whole matter. And it did not have to do with John gaining influence or losing influence for that matter. He starts by declaring an important truth that God is sovereignly in control over this whole situation. Verse 27, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. 
Now, that is the power of all true ministry. And the reason why all were going to Jesus in order to be baptized. They were all going to Jesus because God was sovereignly working in his people through Jesus, and he was bringing everyone to his son as the answer to their problem. Jesus says that this is exactly what the Father does in the lives of believers even today. John 6, 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, Jesus says. So these people had been given to Jesus by the Father, and that is why they were going to Jesus. They were going to him because they had been given to him by heaven. So what was John supposed to do about that? A man can receive nothing if it hasn't been given to him from heaven. What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to go out there, disciples? Am I supposed to go out there and try and win them back over to my side? If a man can receive nothing except it be given to him from heaven, then at that point would I not be found to be contradicting the very will of God as it's being revealed from heaven? You guys are mistaken. The sovereignty of God is at work in this situation. And we, our part in that is not to buck against the sovereignty of God. Our part is to submit to it and rejoice in it. Now this is a, this is a massive point with Massive implications for today. You know, so many ministers and missionaries and Christians forget this reality that the ministry of the church and the ministry of the church suffers a lot because of it. So many who bear the name pastor, they, they see some measure of success in their ministries, and they make some gains for what they understand to be advancements for the kingdom of heaven, and they begin to look at that as though it was something that they had done. And the result, maybe they see it as the result of their own creativity, their own skill, their own wisdom, or, or perhaps they, they truly act as though or believe that they are God's gift to the world and the whole ministry is going to collapse and crumble if they don't get busy doing it. You know, there is none of us who is that important to the cause of God and spreading the kingdom of Christ. This whole church can collapse in on itself. We can all be dispersed from here. Oak Ridge Community Church could be no more. Seth would never be a preacher again. And the kingdom of heaven would continue to advance without skipping a beat. We are not that important. We like to think we are that important. But we are not that important. And you know, with, with that kind of pride and, and self-exaltation that manifests so often in the ministries of pastors and, 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 and missionaries and even within people in the church, right? We all get jealous of one another. We, think, we see the Lord using someone else and we start thinking, well, wait, rather than rejoicing in God's work being done through that person, we start asking ourselves, wait, what's wrong with me? Why isn't God using me like that? Don't you see how ugly that is? How self-centered and self-focused that is? What that betrays is the fact that your ultimate priority is not the kingdom of heaven. It's not the advancement of the glory of Christ. It's your own glory. You want the kingdom to spread, but you want it to spread through, through the works of your hands, right? Not, 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 not the works of John Piper's hands. I, I want to be that preacher, right? That's just an example. I don't want to be John Piper. Right? I'm just saying. And with that kind of pride that manifests in ministries, ministers, missionaries, people within the church, with that kind of pride comes jealousy and bitterness when they see someone else succeeding in the ministry. You know, either one of those responses is nothing more than self-centeredness and selfish ambition. And more dangerously than that, both of those responses, pride in one's own accomplishments and jealousy in someone else's accomplishments, or at least what's being accomplished through someone else, both of those responses exalt self so much that it crowds God out of the whole equation. Where this church is growing and that church is growing because of the, the, the charismatic preachers and leaders of that church, and this church is dying because they just don't have it together. They're only 100 members because they just don't have the swag and, 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 the, and the abilities and all the stuff that the other church of three, three or 4,000 has. 
Right? We, just, we crowd the working of the sovereign God outside of our lives so much that it's as if there's no room for God to work miraculously and deal with us savingly on his own. It's like it all depends upon us. You see that selfish ambition and pride and jealousy put on display when people who are like that start feeling their ministries threatened. That's when their true colors begin to bleed through in a moment. Um, I remember meeting a, a, a pastor of a large church in the Stillwater area, a larger church in the Stillwater area a couple years ago. And this guy was as friendly as could be to me uh, up until the point that he found out that I was a pastor of another church. We had a great conversation. I thought we were rejoicing in the Lord. And then he asked what I did for a living. I said, oh, I'm a pastor at Oak Ridge Community Church. And he did not skip a beat. He literally, and I'm not joking, I'm not exaggerating. He literally turned his back on me and didn't say another word. In the middle of a conversation, that kind of jealousy, selfish ambition, pride, feels threatened at the slightest drop. Just a dumb illustration, but just to make the point that this kind of stuff is real. You know, it's not just ministers and missionaries who are guilty of this. How many believers grow jealous of one another because it seems that God has gifted someone else with gifts that we wish we had? Or we see ourselves as something really special and it bothers us when other people don't see it or acknowledge it. Right? Come on now. I know you guys are in that boat. I'm in that boat. I think you're in that boat with me, right? We see ourselves as something really special and it bothers us when other people don't see us as special or as important as we see ourselves. And we, we kind of say to them, come on, guys, come on, everyone. Come see how great I am. Why don't you see? Why don't you see how awesome I am? I'd be lying if I said I've never seen that in me. Or... There's another way that that pride manifests, even as we see it here with these disciples of John. This selfishness and pride can manifest among the people who follow certain ministers as well. Something that we desperately need to keep in mind in our day of celebrity pastors and world-renowned ministries is that it's very easy for us to fall into the same trap of pride and arrogance and self-centeredness when it comes to attaching ourselves to certain teachers, certain pastors, holding them up as the epitome of faithful Christian ministry. You know, we should be thankful for the ministers that the Lord puts in our lives and for those people who are used mightily by God to bless us and to enrich our walk with Christ. We should be very thankful for them. But we must always stand guard against the cult of celebrity pastors, right? And stop regarding men more highly than we should. They are but men. They have breath in their nostrils just like the rest of us. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.1 that every true minister of the gospel is nothing more than a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. And God is the one who chooses to use his steward or his slave when and where and how he wants to use him. It's not because of any one man that the church is built. You know that. 1 Corinthians 3.9, it says that the church is God's field. The church is God's building. 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says that the church is God's temple. Now notice that. The church is not Seth's temple. It's not Seth's church. It's not Seth's field. It's not Seth's building. It's not John Piper's church. It's not Paul Washer's church. Fill in the blank. It's God's church. It's God's field, God's building, God's temple. And every true minister of the gospel and every spiritually gifted member of the church is nothing more than an instrument in God's hand that he sovereignly uses to grow and to build up his church. That's the point of 1 Corinthians 3.21 where Paul tells the Corinthians, stop boasting in men because all things are yours. 
whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or, or, or Christ, everything belongs to the church. And God is using all the ministers of the church to build up his people. God, you need to understand this, believer. God raises up ministers of the gospel for your sake. Do you know that? We always think in terms of Christ. It's, it's, it's for Christ's sake. That's true. It is for Christ's sake. But don't you remember what Ephesians 5 says that Christ is doing with his church? He's washing her with the water of the word. He's nourishing her. He's cherishing her all the time. And how does he do that? One, by his work upon the cross, by his saving death and, and righteous life and his resurrection and ascension, Jesus is loving and nourishing and cherishing and laying his life down for his people. But the way he has done that in time and in history also is manifest in the ministers that he appoints to take care of his people. You guys don't follow me. It's all right. God raises up ministers of the gospel for your sake. And it is for your sake that God fills some men with a greater measure of his word and with a greater measure of his spirit and uses them to encourage your hearts and to convict you of sin and to build you up in the faith of the gospel. It's not the man who does that. It is God who does that through the man. So it's, it's, it's not the R.C. Sproul's. And it's not the John MacArthur's, and it's not the John Piper's, or the Paul Washer's, or the Joel Beakey's, or the Albert Martin's. It's not any of those that cause your soul to grow and to be inflamed with a greater knowledge of the gospel or, or insight in the truth. It is God the Spirit who is causing your soul to grow in those moments. 1 Corinthians 3, 4-7, Paul makes this very plain. He says, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not acting like mere men? You're not being spiritual in that moment. You're not actually living the life of the Spirit in that moment. You're being just like everybody else. When one says, I'm of, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, you're not acting, are you not acting like mere men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? They're only servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. You see that? It's not Paul, and it wasn't Apollos that caused the church to be built up. It wasn't, any, it wasn't anything on their part that caused any person in Corinth to become a believer in Christ. It was all the Lord giving the opportunity for these people to come to know Jesus. Verse 6, Paul says, I planted and Apollos watered, but who was causing the growth? It was God who was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. <laughs> what, what is the one who plants and the one who waters if, if, if at the end of all of their efforts, there's no growth being produced in the life of the people? No, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. It's God who causes the growth. Beloved, you need to understand this. I know I'm camping on this far longer than I should. But you need to understand that every time a sermon encourages you, or when you sense yourself being brought into a greater understanding of God's word, or when, when the scriptures seem as though they're being unlocked to your mind and your heart flutters within you have that road to Emmaus experience. Did not our hearts burn within us as he was explaining the word to us? When that is happening in your life, you need to realize that it was not the man that you're sitting under who did that to you. Those moments of enlightenment only happen because God is working in your heart by, by the Spirit through that man. That person might be throwing around plenty of seed and plenty of water, but the only thing that causes any of it to become effective and fruitful in your life is the life-giving work of God. God is the one who causes the growth. It's for this that Jesus Christ died, and it is for this that he rose again, so that his resurrection life would be worked within you through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, taking place in the members of his church. So this is what John is getting at with his disciples in this first correction. They still had not learned the lesson that John was nothing. 
that this really wasn't about John, and it wasn't about his ministry, and it wasn't about John's following. That's what they were upset about. Everyone's going to him, John. What are you going to do about it? They hadn't understood that it wasn't about John. It was all about God, and it was about what God was doing to save sinners and to bring them to himself through his son. That's what it was about. It's all about Jesus Christ, the greater than John, who was coming after him. Hadn't he preached that over and over again? He'd always been saying that. And that leads us to the second point of correction that he gives his disciples. He gives them a reminder of that reality in verses 28 and 29, specifically verse 28. John's ministry wasn't about John. It wasn't about his reputation. It wasn't about his following. It was all about God. And it was about what God was doing to save sinners and to bring them to himself through Jesus. So he said to them in verse 28, You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. The whole time in John's ministry, he's been telling them, it's not about me. It's all about him. It's not about my following and my name and my glory and my reputation. It's about the one who's coming after me, whose, whose sandals I am not worthy to bend down and untie. John had made that abundantly clear. Even within the Gospel of John, we see this. In John chapter 1, verse 20, he openly confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And you see the emphasis in the way John the Apostle was writing that. He says he, he confessed it. He did not deny it, but he confessed it. Just boom, boom, boom. John said, it's not me. I'm not the Christ. Verse 23 of chapter 1. He was nothing more. John says that he was nothing more than a voice crying out in the wilderness for people to make ready the way of the Lord. All he was was a, de a declarer. He was a herald standing out in the middle of nowhere calling people to make themselves ready to meet the Lord who was coming. Verses 26 and 27. John had always directed his disciples away from himself and toward the one who was coming after him. So now, the fact that the one coming after John had arrived, right, which was signaled by Jesus coming and baptizing, the fact that the one who, had, who was coming after John had arrived and all were going to him, that only proved that John had done his job. That he had faithfully fulfilled his ministry. See, what his disciples viewed as a threat to their rabbi's ministry was actually the greatest marker of his success, they viewed the fact that everyone was leaving John and going to Jesus as a bad thing. And John looks at them and says, no, you don't understand. That was the point the whole time. I want to say it's the same, the same is true for us in our ministries as well, beloved. I wonder, just by application, do we find people running to Jesus as a result of our ministering to them? Do we find that in our families, husbands, in your faithful and diligent ministry to your wives? Do you find your wife increasingly running to Jesus? That's your job. That's your calling. To shepherd your wife so that she puts her hand more firmly in the hand of Christ. What about among our friends? Do we, do we shepherd our, our friends in, in a way? Are, are, we, are we representatives of, to our friends of Christ in such a way that it leads them to say, man, there's got to be something about this Jesus. I've got to go find this out for myself. Or with our children, or if we don't have any children, in the way that we interact with other people's children, right? With our coworkers and families and friends, beloved, are, are, are we... Are, are, are we even with one another, ministering to each other in such a way that it causes us to flee to Christ Jesus? When we're doing that, then we'll know that we're operating in ministry the way God intends us to operate in ministry. Ephesians 4.15, we're charged by God himself to use our gifts to speak the truth and love to one another unto this end that we would help one another grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. That's, that, that's the goal behind all of your interactions in the church body. 
That, that is the point and the purpose and the aim for which you are going. You're, you're running to this goal. You want to see Christ formed more firmly in the life of the person with whom you're talking. So after service, whenever you're talking with one another, what are you talking about? When church, just, just let's hear in the life of this body and this worship service, when we are in here singing praises to God and encouraging one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as, our, as, our, as, as what God expects us to do as his people, are you engaging in that fully with a view to encouraging your brothers and sisters to do it more mightily unto God? Are you singing with gusto and with all your heart and with full praise pouring out of your lips in hopes that you will encourage the heart of your friend, your brother, your sister to lift up their own hearts more fully to the Lord? You know, I get this, I get this picture of how you read in the book of Revelation and it's when, when the chorus breaks out in heaven, it's not a quiet thing. Heaven is erupting with praise, and the very foundations of heaven seem as though they're shaking under the weight of the praise of God's people. You know, the church service is supposed to picture that. Boy, that's cutting. If someone who was unacquainted with the scriptures and unacquainted with the life of God came into this place and began to evaluate what heaven was going to be like based upon our worship, I wonder what they would think. Is, is your ambition in all the ways that you interact with one another in this body, is your ambition to see your brother or your sister growing up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ? Is that your desire and your goal? And does that actually tangibly manifest itself in your interactions with them? You can say, well, yeah, that's my desire in my heart. Well, how does that desire work itself out in life, in practice, in the way you interact with one another here? Is it about Christ or is it about you? Is that your ambition as you interact with each other? I love my brothers and my sisters in Christ, and I'm not here to cut them down. I'm not here to demean them. I'm not here to discourage them. I'm not here to hold a grudge against them when they sin against me. I'm here to be gracious, and I'm here, I'm here not to exalt myself. I'm here not to protect my own pride or my own ego or to save face before them. I am here for one reason, and that is to build them up. To strengthen them in the faith and in the faithful God who loved them and gave his son for them. I'm here to hold their arms up and to help keep them walking in this long journey of sojourning. Well, until I come home, until I go to be with Christ and at home in glory, or I have to let go of their arm because Christ has called them home to glory. My job is to come alongside of them and to build them up in Christ. And until we do that, we're not walking faithfully as a church body. It's just as simple as that. It's a high, it's a high task. It, it's a, a weighty charge that's set before our feet. But this is exactly what Christ has called us to do. And you know what that means? It means you're going to have to swallow your pride a lot. And you're going to have to eat crow a lot. You're going to have to overlook offenses a lot. Just as everyone else is going to have to do those same things for your sake. Because you stink far more than you know. Right? You ever walk into somebody's house and, it, and it's just like, whoa. <laughs> How do these people live in this smell, right? That's because they're used to it. You know, the, same, the same kind of stink happens with us in our, in our spiritual lives. You know that. Some of us reek. I can be among them. At times we all reek. But we don't smell it as sharply or as distinctly as we should because that's the smell we're used to. So why God has put us in a body of Christ with other believers who aren't used to that smell so that whenever they get around us, they can say, Oh, brother. Did you put your spiritual deodorant on today? I don't think you did. Did you take a bath this morning with your soul, brother? <coughs> Spewing out some filthy smells there. That's what we're called to be for one another. And, you know, all we're going to Jesus 
under John because that is exactly the purpose of his ministry, and that's exactly what he was doing. He was pointing people back to Christ. He was pointing people to the Messiah who was coming. And so when that Messiah came, it was only natural for the puzzle pieces to fall into place and for all the people to run to Jesus. That wasn't a mark of failure in his ministry or a threat to his ministry. That was a sign that John was being faithful to God and being successful in his ministry. So point number three, to correct his disciples, he uh, follows all of this up with an illustration. Verse 29, he gives them an illustration to make clear exactly what he has been saying to them the whole time. He says in verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him greatly rejoices because of the bridegroom's voice. And therefore, John says, this joy of mine has been made full or it is complete. This is an interesting illustration. These people that John's disciples are talking about, all these people that are going to Jesus, John the Baptist identifies them as Christ's bride. And in doing so, he says, I am only here to stand guard until over the bride until the bridegroom comes. And then it's time for the bridegroom to have his bride. You know, the, uh, the tradition of a groom having a best man goes back centuries. We all know that. Today, the best man is mainly responsible to help organize the groomsmen and to hold on to the rings and make sure he does not lose them. Um, and then, to top it all off, he's responsible to give some speech at the wedding reception and to try and make it as funny as possible. Right? That's, that is the job of modern-day best men. But in biblical times, in Jewish culture, the best man, the one who, whom John calls here the, the friend of the bridegroom, the best man was responsible for far more than that. It was his job to oversee and, and organize and work with the director of the entire wedding ceremony and, and the uh, uh, wedding reception. He served as the attendant both for the groom and the bride, and he was the go-between between the groom and bride to make sure that the groom and bride never interacted with one another. If they had to say something to one another, they would say it through the friend of the bridegroom. And then on top of that, the most important task that was entrusted to the friend of the bridegroom was the care and protection of the groom's bride after the wedding ceremony had been completed. So when the wedding reception was winding down and the party was coming to an end, the bride would excuse herself and leave and go to her bridal chamber where she would prepare herself to receive her husband. It was the friend of the bridegroom's job to stand guard at the door of the bridal chamber and make sure that no one comes into that bridal chamber except for the bridegroom. That is the most important job that the groom would entrust to his best man. You are to make sure that in the darkness, after the party's over and it's late in the night, you are to make sure that no one else comes into that room except me. And so when that bridegroom, or the friend of the bridegroom stood guard at the door and he waited to hear the voice of the bridegroom, the bridegroom would come and it would either be a recognition of, the, of his voice because he's such a good friend or maybe there was some secret phrase that the bridegroom would say whenever he approached so that the friend of the bridegroom knew the bridegroom's coming, it's time for me to move and let him in. That was his most important job, even to the point of laying down his life for his friend's bride. He was entrusted to take care of the groom's bride until the groom arrived and entered in to have his bride. John says to his disciples, that's why I'm here. I'm nothing more than the friend of the bridegroom standing guard over his bride until he comes. And once he comes and I hear his voice... Oh, I rejoice to hear his voice. And my joy is made full because that means my job's over and now my friend has his bride. Point number four. I was trying to run through this. 
John says to his disciples, this is what I'm here for. I'm the friend. He is the bridegroom, and it's my job to guard his bride until he arrives. And then, in conclusion, John says in verse 30, he makes clear the need of his ministry now that the bridegroom has arrived. Because the bridegroom has arrived as, sig as Jesus signaled through baptizing and doing what John was doing, that was a signal that the bridegroom had finally come. Because the bridegroom had arrived, John says it was time for him to increase and it was time for John to decrease. You know, it wasn't John's bride to have. The people who were responding to the message of the kingdom of heaven, the people who were repenting and submitting to God in baptism, that was the groom's bride, and John was only there to protect that bride until he came. Now that the groom has come, John can rejoice that he has come to receive his bride and that it was time for John to go home. Glorious time. Disappear, leave the bride with her bridegroom. Now, in many ways, as we come to an end here, in many ways, every true minister of the gospel functions like that. We guard and we are entrusted with the task of guarding and protecting the bride of Christ. Um, elders, especially you, listen to this. We are entrusted by Christ to guard and to protect his bride. That's what the church is. The church is Christ's bride, the company of all of those who have truly believed in the Son of God for salvation. Now, just as God formed Eve and brought her to Adam, and Adam declared over her, this is bone of my bone, this is flesh of my flesh. Man, she is amazing. That's what, that's what Adam's saying there in Genesis 2. Husbands, take a lesson. Wow, man, look what God has done in this one. She is awesome. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Come here, baby. You know, God did that with Adam and Eve to make a point about what he was going to do in, in, with his own son and his own son's bride. It's the same way with the church. God the Father has chosen a bride for his son. Oh, man, God, the Father has chosen a bride for his son. You're part of that. God is, believer, God has singled you out to belong to his son in a covenant relationship that is only, uh, only pictured by marriage. That brings joy to my heart. God the Father has chosen a bride for his son, and he has sent his son into this world in order to have her. The Son became one with us. He became bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh so that He might look upon us and declare, Behold, my bride is now one with me. She is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. As Hosea 2.19 said, it promised that in Christ God has betrothed us to Himself forever in righteousness and in justice and in loving kindness and compassion. He has betrothed us to Himself in faithfulness. Christ has proven the depth of that faithfulness. He's already paid the dowry. He's already made everything necessary to receive His bride to Himself. He's purchased her. He has betrothed us to him. And now we are waiting on our bridegroom to come. We are waiting for him to split the sky and bring us into his house, his eternal dwelling place where we will be with God forever. And until the day of Christ's glory, when he comes to receive us to himself, he has entrusted his church to the care of those who serve alongside John as friends of the bridegroom. Paul puts, the, puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 11 too. He says, those who are like Paul, those, those are men who are jealous for Christ's people with a godly jealousy because the church, Christ's people, have been betrothed to one husband. And the friends appointed by the, by the groom to take care of his bride labor with Christ's own jealousy for them burning in their hearts so that one day when we're all standing in the presence of the bridegroom, we might present you as a pure and spotless virgin unto the one who betrothed you. 
That's the function of pastoral ministry, the pastoral position in the church. It is to keep the church pure and to make sure that she can be handed off in a pure manner unto the groom to whom she belongs. I can confess to you that with great jealousy, we labor for your purity and we try our best by the Spirit of God to stand guard. And to make sure that no other trust intrudes into the place that rightfully belongs to Christ. As elders in this church, we labor hard to make sure that no false hope sinks into your heart that would keep you from inheriting glory in Christ Jesus. We labor to make sure that no sin and no impurity is permitted to enter into Christ's bride. To come into her chambers while she is waiting on the return of her, of her groom. Revelation 19, 7 through 8, it tells us, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given her to clothe herself with fine linen, fine linen bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That day of glory is yet to come. When Christ returns with that sword in his mouth to judge the world in righteousness, that day will come. But right now, the bride is supposed to be making herself ready. Don't lose me here. Don't let me lose you here. This is the aim of all true ministry. And right now, this is what you are supposed to be doing as you are waiting for the return of your bridegroom. You are supposed to be making yourself ready to be received by him. This is the aim of the entire Christian life. That we as the bride of Christ would be in our bridal chamber making ourselves ready for the bridegroom to come in order that he might receive us to himself. And I wonder, beloved, is that what we are actually doing every day? That's what we're called to do. We're called to be making ourselves ready for our bridegroom. Is that actually what we are doing every day? Is that the mindset that we have? That, that every single moment of every single day, we are charged with the task to be beautifying ourselves for the sake of our groom? No bride, I mean, no bride just wakes up on the morning of her wedding and just throws herself together at the last second. If that was you, I'm sorry to be offensive, but no, no, no bride rightly thinking through what the marriage ceremony is about and what it's all picturing and representing. No bride just throws herself together the last second and goes and gets married. No, there are months worth of planning Working through the marriage ceremony, there are weeks and months of preparation. There are hours, there are hours of tailoring and putting on the dress. Doing her hair and her makeup and painting her nails and getting manicures done and all that stuff. There are hours of preparation that are put into the, prep, the work of making herself ready to see her groom for the first time. Beloved, that is the picture of the Christian life. That's what it's supposed to be for us. We often, we so often think we, we're just, we live in such a way that we can just make ourselves ready at any, at any moment that we're called upon to be acceptable and presentable to Christ. We just, we, we can be totally engulfed in the things of the world and all the distractions going on outside, but as soon as we walk through those doors, we, we can flip a light switch and all of a sudden we're spiritual. The bride is called to adorn herself with holy, white, righteous linen, the good deeds of the saints. Are you preparing yourself to meet Christ by putting on that holy, white linen? You don't know when your last moment will be. You don't know when Christ is going to call you home. Don't you want to be prepared to meet him as best as you can? That's the picture. I, I, I will abstain from that lust or from that temptation. I will abstain from that sinful desire because I'm making myself ready to see my bridegroom. 
I actually, I will love sacrificially because that is what my bridegroom has called me to do while I wait for him. I will share the love that he has for me with others. I will devote myself to living a pure and increasingly holy life before him because I want to be as clothed in fine linen in his eyes as I can be on the day when he returns. Is that the ambition of your heart? 2 Corinthians 5.9, we make it our ambition to be pleasing to him. That's the Christian life. So in conclusion, what kind of ways do you need to decrease and what kind of ways does Christ need to increase in your life? What kinds of things need to be cut out in order for Christ to reign, Christ reign to, to, to be put on display more fully in your life? What kinds of things are vying for your affections and distracting you from Jesus? What kinds of things are you devoting your hands to and living your lives for? Where do you need to repent? Where do you need to decrease? Where does Christ need to increase? Would you pray with me? Father, that's our hope and our ambition. Lord, we do long to be pleasing to you, and we know how much we fall short of that high and lofty goal. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Give us a sound, sound wisdom and understanding in your word. Lord, so that we will know how to do the things that are pleasing in your sight. We love you, Lord, and we have come to, to know and to believe in the love that you have for us in your Son. I pray that we would put that love on, on fuller display in the way that we live our lives and the things that we do day to day. Father, be with us now. Help us sing this last song of praise this morning unto your holy name with full hearts and with lips that are filled with praise to you. Lord, we love you and we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Benediction comes from Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 8. Then I heard something like a voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. May you go forward in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ and put on as much of that fine linen as you possibly can until that day of the marriage feast. Lord, we pray for this and we ask you to be with us as we go forward into this world. Help us walk in a manner worthy of that gospel. Amen.